are listening to Ideas on Trapped with Toby Lawson. Welcome to Ideas on Trap podcast. And on today's episode, we will be discussing economic transformation and diversification. Many low-income countries confront the challenge of transforming from an agrarian or resource-based economy to an industrial one. We can see this in our country's struggle to diversify their exports and sources of public revenue, but particularly nurturing a policy environment for economic transformation. Despite the abundance of examples from the developed world, is often the hardest part of the challenge. So joining me on today's episode to explore this and many more is economist British Behuria. He is a professor of politics, governance and development at the University of Manchester and he has contributed immensely to the study of the political economy of many development policy paradigms like transformation, diversification and import substitution. I start by asking British whether leapfrogging the idea of growing through services instead of manufacturing is a promising idea or a fad. I hope you enjoyed and I hope you learned as much as I did. Ideas on Trap is sponsored by iInvest. iInvest is Nigeria's foremost digital platform for trading financial products like treasury bills, fixed deposit notes, commercial papers, euro bonds, and many more. It is the leading financial services marketplace that gives you access to investment opportunities from various financial services providers within a single secure platform. Download the iInvest app on your Google Play Store or iOS App Store today and start investing at your convenience from anywhere in the world. Terms and conditions apply. And now, let's listen to the podcast. British, welcome to the show. Uh, It's great to have you. No, thanks, Toby. It's really great to be here. Uh, I've been reading about your podcast, and it's nice to talk to you and hear about how you're trying to approach the challenge of economics, of development in such a broad way and in a pluralist way, uh, especially since it's something I think that many of us from different countries are always trying to grapple to understand more about. One thing I would like us to firstly talk about is leapfrogging. Recently, when you read even some of the biggest advocates of structural transformation, say people like Danny Rodrick, for example, there seemed to be some kind of consensus forming around the, should I say, hypothesis or observation that manufacturing is no longer an option for countries that are industrializing today. So there's so much talk about leapfrogging that you can actually grow through services. You've actually studied this, looking at Rwanda, but there's also a lot of skepticism, you know, given the nature of services. They are non-tradable. Most of the service sector is in the low productivity urban sector and a whole lot of things. So what have you found? What are your thoughts around leapfrogging? Is it practical? Have we given up on manufacturing and industrialization as a development strategy? Thanks, Toby. I think it's such an important question. You know, so many countries are facing this question. There's so much attraction towards the idea of leapfrogging, towards moving beyond manufacturing. I have written a paper with Tom Goodfellow about the Rwanda case in particular, and we are quite skeptical about it, uh, the possibilities associated with this. But I think it is important to understand where governments are coming from, right, and why they are approaching it in this way. So one of the things a structuralist would always think about primarily in terms of late development is a kind of balance of payment constraint, right? A real situation that separates developing or late developing countries from industrialized countries is this balance of payment constraints. That is, they import more than they export. And they face these foreign exchange shortages, right? So one of the things that I find that is really happening a lot because of the legacy of structural adjustment, because of the legacy of financial liberalization, you'll find pockets that are actually trying to become more financially integrated because there is a neoclassical assumption that 
if you integrate more financially, it will lead to more an investment which will solve this kind of lack of foreign exchange, right? So there is a bit of a problem on the financial sector side that this is a huge attraction. But services, it does have some productive capacity, right? There is possibility to move towards services, but historically manufacturing has played an essential role. And Nicholas Caldor, of course, talked about this in terms of how manufacturing was central to productivity gains in, in the economy. It created dynamism towards linkages, for example, as Hirschman talked about. It also sucked up low skilled labor that was necessary as agriculture was becoming more productive. So manufacturing plays that essential role because often tourism requires, you know, if you focus on tourism or finance, it's much more educated labor, etc., which takes time. It's not necessary that a country can just jump the manufacturing sector in that way. But there is another key reason why countries have done this, and that is because there is a misinterpretation of how certain countries have developed. Certain countries are constantly presented as role models, like Singapore. Singapore is actually heavily industrialized. It is also heavily financialized. And it had a particular history that allowed it to invest in primary education, allowed it to invest in high-level education that helped facilitate movement into the services sector. It is not something that happened overnight. When you think about Singapore, you think about finance and big buildings and being a hub. You don't really think about its manufacturing history or even that it's an island, so it's slightly different, right? On the continent, again, Mauritius is uh, often identified as a role model. And this is again challenging because Mauritius actually had a big textile boom. And without that textile boom, there wouldn't have been this kind of a strong labor position to ensure that social services were redistributed in an equitable way that allowed this kind of high welfare state to sustain the services-led economy that exists today. It's a very difficult jump that countries are trying to make and what countries are primarily facing, and we will see it now because so many countries have become tourism dependent. Most countries will face this kind of balance of payment crunch again. And this will be a huge constraint for economies as they try to recover. I do wonder though, is it an African problem? Well, we may argue that because of globalization and automation, manufacturing, especially low-skilled, labor-intensive manufacturing, is becoming harder and harder to do as a development strategy. But when you look at countries like Bangladesh, for example, I know the Bangladeshi textile industry has some kind of enclave effect, but still exhibits some of the same patterns. And when you look at, say, a country like Vietnam, they are still trying to do structural transformation, at least the way, the East Asian way, so to speak. So this leapfrogging, is it an African phenomenon? So many countries are trying in Africa to leapfrog, but that is primarily because of the structural weakness that colonialism kind of caused, right? So there is a kind of catch-up latecomer position of many African countries that has resulted because East Asia managed to catch up, East Asia being the outlier, and Latin America had a huge, much longer phase. I mean, it's obviously diverse experiences across African countries, but had a much longer phase and ideological attachment to import substitution. The challenge in terms of thinking about structural transformation is you're right. It's not that the developmental state, what Korea and Taiwan did, is what every country should do. I mean, Korea and Taiwan did different things as well. What they did focus on was manufacturing, but what they did focus on as well is investing in agriculture first, right? Many countries did not invest in agriculture in the same way. Even Ethiopia, say, which is the country which is closest to the East Asian developmental state model, at least failed to really capitalize on its export sector. Like you mentioned Vietnam. Vietnam became one of a very prominent coffee exporter from nowhere. And that created important source of foreign exchange, which Ethiopia, okay, the coffee sector is still important, but I mean, they really did not invest in it in the same way. They did a lot of perhaps unproductive things with a commodity exchange in the coffee sector as well. Yeah, so it's important to think from the specific country's position How can it create more diversified sources of employment, of revenue, right? And 
that could be also within agriculture. Now, agriculture itself is heavily mechanized, something like exporting pineapples or fruits directly to Europe. It's it's an industrial product, right? There are equity challenges with this. But yeah, it is definitely an industrial product. It creates a huge source of employment, depending on the commodity, of course. But yeah. One other thing I find interesting is that a lot of this talk about leapfrogging or skepticism around manufacturing as a strategy is also happening around the time when I would say industrial policy is becoming popular and more acceptable in development discourse. So it's causing a bit of, I don't know, maybe cognitive dissonance, I should say. So, but let's talk about industrial policy. I know you've also written about that from a Rwandan perspective and, of course, others. Now, what are the common misconceptions that you find in discussing industrial policy? Because a lot of countries are trying to do industrial policy. Nigeria is trying to do industrial policy. That happens primarily by closing its markets to products that we think we can make locally, you know, and try to capture the domestic market. So basically import substitution industrialization. But there are also skepticism about ISI. So Others will tell you that, oh, yeah, you need to have export orientation, export manufacturing really is the way to go. So what are the common misconceptions and what do you think is the right way to think about industrial policy? Yeah, so I wouldn't say that there's a universalistic right way, but I think one of the key features to industrial policy is retaining the space to experiment and to learn from failure, right? Industrial policy will always contribute to failure, and that's important to keep in mind. There will be political failure, because industrial policy is essentially not just protection. It is when you are protecting these companies, they have to be supported to diversify, absorb new technological capacities, build linkages domestically, right? create dynamism in the economy, or export and export to diversified markets. Industrial policy is important because it leads to sustained economic diversification. That basically means producing different products that are often linked together, as Hirschman would talk about in terms of linkages, but also that you're exporting not just through a specific African Growth and Opportunity Act that, sure, you benefit from, but that you diversify your markets as well. You're using industrial policy to diversify your sources of dependency, right? That's the idea of structural transformation more broadly. Now, the challenge that many countries face is, and this is really since the 1970s and the real push, and Kruger and the World Bank, when they attacked this idea of industrial policy in a major way, was that neoclassical economics was largely focused its attention on criticizing the misallocation of resources. And industrial policy is the misallocation of resources. You're distorting the market. So it's necessary, right? And that will lead to corruption. There's no question it will lead to corruption. It will both lead to corruption in terms of distorting the market, but also perhaps benefiting some people to others. And often, I mean, even in Korea, the diversified business groups like Hyundai and Samsung today are extremely corrupt, even getting called up for corruption cases now. Sure. Aligned with the prime minister. That doesn't excuse corruption. Corruption is obviously something that needs to be got rid of. But... The idea is that the government needs to retain the disciplinary capacity and the willingness to discipline companies to ensure that they are absorbing technology and continually investing and diversifying their production. So countries either fall up in failing to discipline or because donors, etc., don't allow them to, which they still don't really allow a lot of distortion to the economy, either through bilateral pressure or also because many government officials, even in our our country, like India, is, we have this challenge in one of the courses I used to teach. You know, It's very difficult to actually find a neoliberal because no one would call themselves a neoliberal. But the only one that actually does, the only one or two are Indians. <laughs> so it's rare that, uh, of course, Deepak Lal being uh, with the poverty of development economics, um, being one of them. 
And it's important to recognize that a very structural thing happened in government ministries around the world, but definitely in African countries as well. And Tandika Makandavir talks about this. That after the 1970s, there was this kind of shift in power away from the expenditure ministries, government ministries that spend money, like Ministry of Industry, Ministry of Education, to Ministry of Finance, to the Central Bank, which are effectively budgetary ministries. They're effectively austerity ministries, right? And this shift in power is in terms of showing not just to donors, but also because it's signaling to external investors that there's alignment with how Western countries are shaped currently, which is not even true that much. And a lot of the economists trained in these ministries are trained in the U.S. in neoclassical economics. So they very much believe this. I hear you, but mm-hmm. let me try and push back a bit on that. Obviously, you're a scholar, so in examining ideas, you have to look at it critically. But from, say, a citizen's or a local perspective, when people blame the IMF and uh, structural adjustment programs and things like that, my reaction, and please tell me if I'm wrong here, My reaction is usually that, are we not confusing the mandates of these multilateral institutions? For example, the way I think about the IMF is not to help Nigeria develop. And Mm -hmm. I sort of see the push for financial responsibility, fiscal responsibility, as some kind of low-risk strategy so that a lot of these countries don't get into future financial or fiscal trouble Mm -hmm. that then necessitates some kind of bailout. So I primarily see the work of development and structural transformation and trying to grow your economy as the role of national governments as your mandate, you know. So aren't we like misappropriating the rules of these institutions because, I mean, the way I look at it, the incentives are clearly different. No, you raise important points. And obviously, um, you know, there's no right answer. They're both opinions, right? And this is important also because what's central to refocus on is that there isn't one single economic understanding of a role of the government in the financial sector, of a role of the government in industrial policy, etc. Right? It's important to hold this idea that there is a kind of pluralist approach to thinking about it, and there are alternative ways in which economic policy has been shaped. Right? The IMF and the World Bank, the truth is that Historically, governments go to them when they're in trouble. They don't go to them when they're not needed. You go to them when you are in trouble, and then they tell you what policies you need to implement. And those policies have always, starting with structural adjustment, of course, I mean, even before, of course, they were involved, but starting with structural adjustment, they were market-led policies, right, that got countries into a lot of problems. Now, what's also clear is World Bank and IMF hold a lot of economic authority in terms of expertise. Countries do go to East Asia increasingly as well, right? But they are generally seen, and obviously every country is different to some degree, but they are seen as holding a lot of the economic expertise to advise how to adapt your financial sector reforms, etc. So they do hold that so they can gear your economy a lot. Now, your question about the government should have national authority. And yes, of course, the government is ultimately responsible for the policies it implements, right? Governments willingly adopt these policies, but they are doing a lot of this out of structural weakness. But in order to say some governments may be more open to industrial policy, like, of course, in Nigeria, right? You had the backward integration plan, which supported Dangote's growth which has been a major manufacturing success story, though, of course, not without its criticisms. That kind of space needs to be created to allow those kind of industrial policies to take place. That space doesn't exist in many countries. And Dangote was able to push this because he was already, I mean, from a wealthy family in Nigeria with a history of being one of the biggest business groups. Is that kind of space created to allow for a broader uh, transformation of the economy? A key challenge that has happened is that historically, of course, 
East Asia was actually not a, didn't have a, any international, no international commercial banks. They had capital controls. So they were able to use finance as a source to promote economic diversification. This is really important because, you know, you need money to invest in your structural transformation, to invest even when things fail, and for no one to tell you that you're doing something wrong. Nearly every African country has had to liberalize its financial sector, except Ethiopia. I mean, everyone has liberalized, and nearly every African country has had to invite foreign investors in as well. And of course, the logic of doing this was in the 1970s. It wasn't just that the market would allocate resources perfectly in an efficient way. It was actually that with Eugene Farmer's efficient market hypothesis, it played out a lot in developing countries, the influence of this. That financial markets, which we actually know from Minsky and others, that financial markets are extremely volatile. Farmer's mm-hmm. approach was that financial markets would allocate resources efficiently. But what is the story? If they did allocate resources efficiently, you'd imagine in these competitive liberalized financial sectors, interest rates should be low, but they're not low at all. They're extremely high. I mean, which business person is going to get loans from a commercial bank and pay 20, 25% interest rates? Right? You don't have a development bank supporting you to do this. And this is a huge constraint, right? And now what we have in, say, many more developmentally oriented governments use pension funds, like Rwanda's biggest investor, which rarely talked about, and they do all they can to make sure no one knows about it, is the Social Security Board. The Social Security Board in Rwanda invests in most strategic projects in the country for transformation. And it usually invests with party and military-owned enterprises. Of course, there's another small challenge with this, that if you keep supporting an investor through these kind of uh, a particular domestic business person, you as a government become increasingly dependent on them. So in India, we have this problem where we have a lot of nationally-owned banks who give long-term loans to business people. But because the government has no disciplinary capacity, they've all run away with these loans at very low interest rates. So they're all hiding in different tax havens around the world. When you're giving away these loans cheap, if you're doing it for industrial policy, you need to have the disciplinary capacity to firstly make sure they don't run away, which is difficult when there are no capital controls. And then also make sure they're actually using it for what they said they would. And they're using it for diversification. Well, I mean, it's interesting you talked about Anguti. I was going to lead up our conversation into state capture. Uh, one thing that came to my mind is this William Easterly quote where he says, governments may not know how to pick winners, but losers know how to pick governments. So, I mean, when you try to do industrial policy, state capture, we all know about the corruption problem and that never really goes away, regardless of where you are in the world. Even developed countries have pockets mm-hmm. of corruption. But state capture seems to be something that looms very large in some African countries, Nigeria included, trying to, you know, emulate, so to speak, the East Asian miracle. Because in Nigeria, some will tell you we have two cement multi-billionaires and who capture 40% margin in profit. We haven't seen any kind of construction or employment boom you know, out of that industry. So can you walk me through how governments can prepare themselves or what are the mechanisms that are necessary to prevent state capture when you're trying to diversify your economy? Yeah, thanks, Toby. It's such a difficult question, right? Like, how would you do this as a policymaker? (laughs) But the truth is, I mean, I think you cannot do it as a policymaker. And that tells you what you're talking about directly is why this is a political question. We are always envisioning industrial policy as a kind of technical issue. It really blinds us to the politics of how this actually succeeds. When we think about the politics of industrial policy, we usually blame politics in a way, right? But politics is also the reason why things succeed, right? The reason why a government has disciplinary capacity against business, whether it's not just about discipline, it's also about giving benefits. So it's a reciprocal arrangement. 
between state and business that allows industrial policy to work. This is something that even Roderick and Al Samsden has have talked about, for example. So the idea here would be that when we think about monopolies, right? When we think about monopolies and we envision free markets, what do we see in our face about monopolies? It's Amazon, it's, you know, the big IT giants, etc. These were actually created by a bit of state investment in the U.S., but that's obviously not acknowledged. There's been a lot of market competition that has led to monopoly. Similarly, what you're doing here in industrial policy, if you're picking winners, is you are giving perhaps a kind of advantage to certain firms, although often you can do it, just do it to certain sectors. And you kind of need to ensure that there is some way of not just either the government disciplining them, but also ensuring that there's enough competition. You need to give them reasons and some motivation to increase investment in technological capabilities. Because central to industrial policy is ensuring that there's a politics shaping the necessity of consistently learning. Right? And people talk about this in terms of setting export targets, clear quantitative targets, but it can also be you know, supporting other competitors. I mean, you have to have the political space as a government to do that. The challenge is if you're dependent on them for finance, for your election, it's quite tough to do, right? It's not easy. And ultimately, this is a political challenge. Uh, so, yeah. One other thing, I, I mean, obviously, the show is about ideas. And I remember, Roderick, at this paper where you said politicians are basically policy entrepreneurs, you know. They use ideas to try and sell you a basket of proposals. So, but you find that a lot of governments, regardless of their local political situation, which you also explored with your political settlements approach in some of your papers, use ideas from proponents of industrial policy and the rule of the state to de-emphasize the role of the market, you know, and it leads to, I would say, maybe what someone like Land Pritchett would call a capability trap, you know, where you think you can do something because China is doing it. Uh, if, for example, Nigeria is trying to control social media because we think China is doing it. We are distorting markets because we think China is doing it. We want a steel industry because Korea is doing it, you know. So I guess my question, I'm, I'm rambling a bit. I guess my question would be that why don't maybe you can tell me this because you are an heterodox guy. <laughs> so why do heterodox scholars in the development niche not talk about markets enough? Because I know for a fact that policymakers and politicians in developing countries listen to their ideas and they use them sometimes wrongly to justify some of their uninformed policies. You know, that is not to exonerate the neoliberal neoclassical side with also the emphasis on markets. Why is the debate polarized would be my question, really. Okay, so the debate is polarized, I think, in a way because it is popularly slightly cast in a in a misdirection. So usually you see one heterodox side talking about the state. You see, like, you imagine the neoclassicals are talking about the market. That's not necessarily the case. I would say that, firstly, heterodox scholarship is a wide range of different approaches, right, from Marxian to institutional to post-Keynesian, etc., there is a different way of saying the state and market as separate entities, but historically, you can also see the state and market as not separate from each other. Because historically, the state is always present. The state is required to enact market-led reforms. So the state is required to enact market-led reforms, and even the inaction of the state is a state action, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think this recasting is a bit of a challenge, and but this is how it's popularly understood. Just to go back to your other point, I think this is a really important point you mentioned about government officials looking for policies and trying to see what fits their agenda or, you know, actually grappling with the challenge of 
development and saying, okay, these market-led policies have not worked. Let's do something that Korea did. Yeah. I think a lot of the developmental state scholars or more institutional scholars rarely call for mimicry of a policy alone. The key really is think about that policy and see how you can adapt it to fit with your domestic political economy, right? So the political settlement framework was developed by Mushtaq Khan, who actually has a big project in Nigeria, which may be interesting. It's called Anti-Corruption Evidence Program. Uh, Him and Pallavi Roy are talking about it. And I have been working on it for a few years, um, I think with some, I'm not sure which university exactly. But the idea with the political settlement framework is that the policy you choose needs to fit with the political settlement. That in basic language means that if you're trying to take a policy from elsewhere, whether it be a market-led policy, um, a more heterodox policy, you need to make sure that it works with the sector you're working on, right? So I'll give you an example. So we had in countries that I do research in, Rwanda, of course, the, this policy of trying to ban used clothes. Mm. So East Africa took a collective decision of the East African community that they will raise tariffs, increase protection on used clothes, and then eventually ban it altogether. The U.S., because of the recycling company that launched an issue about this, said that if you do this, we will withdraw preferential trade access through the African Growth and Opportunity Act. The African Growth and Opportunity Act has been an important source of apparel's production growth in Africa for many countries. So Uganda and Kenya withdrew immediately. Rwanda maintained it. Another popular policy at that time was heterodox policy that was happening was to use public procurement for industrial policy. This is allowed in the WTO, so countries can actually do this. So you can use state-owned contracts to promote whatever, like water bottle production or anything, right? You can use it to fit your contract. So they were going to do this for uniforms and things like that. But this didn't work. Okay, in Rwanda, there has been some benefits. In Uganda, there was a particular problem because... They had just given huge incentives for a foreign investor called Fine Spinners Uganda, which is slightly Kenyan-owned, slightly British-owned, etc., to come in and export through the European trade agreement, but also the U.S. trade agreement. So there was also a historical company there that was also in Rwanda, owned by an Asian Ugandan businessman, who had never been interested in African Growth Opportunity Act. So you have two instances of the two largest companies, one only being interested in foreign access, the other not interested at all, but the government has just not been able to discipline this company to diversify its operations. And now the government was trying to copy popular heterodox policies, but it just did not fit with the two, even the two main firms were clashing. So it needs to be fitting with the political reality of your sector, right? But you are very right that there's this tendency on both sides to pick a trendy policy and go with it. Let's talk about global value chains for a bit. How much promise does it hold in this industrialization approach? Uh, Is it a good sidestep? Is it promising? Is it something that, sure, there has been lots of research talking about its benefits, and I'm sure a lot of African countries, uh, Rwanda is doing that with coffee, Ghana recently said it's not going to export raw cocoa to Switzerland anymore. We want to produce our own coffee. And uh, I actually had a more positive reaction to that than many people, but we'll see how it works. So is it something that holds promise? Yeah. Okay. So I'll just give you a bit of background about the literature. So global value chains basically means the fragmentation of production being increasingly dispersed around the world after the 1980s and 1990s with the liberalization of market-led policies around the world, but also in terms of shifts in production and things like that. So it's not necessarily that it holds promise, but it is just something that everyone has to deal with. Right? So countries, when they're trying to upgrade or export their commodities, they have to deal with competition to integrate into global value chains, which are also moving rapidly. For example, you just take the example of coffee. Uh, about eight, nine years when I started doing my research, basically high quality coffee had to be kind of fair trade, right? That was the standard that was governing coffee. 
now even in manchester but of course all around the world the new hot trend is relationship coffee the people selling coffee claim to be sourcing it directly from farmers and that therefore it becomes more ethical but there's actually no standard on which to judge this so it is about selling a story to meet the high value markets um it is something that a country definitely needs to engage with the challenge that a lot of the focus on industrial policy at a policy level is for most countries is that it is dominated now by global value chain oriented industrial policy that is the argument is for example the world bank has a recent report that in order to develop you basically have to link yourself into global value chains now the problem most countries face is you kind of get stuck in the low value segments and then you're not really diversifying at all even of manufacturing you're basically just producing garments and selling it to H&M i mean it's helpful for employment in some cases but even that's extremely mechanized so these are the constraints we have to deal with the global value chain sets the constraints that countries have to deal with but the challenge of development is fundamentally the same is that you have to kind of produce domestically increase the kind of domestic linkages that you have but also in terms of diversifying your sources of dependency by making sure you either consistently upgrade within global value chains or diversify within them no because that reduces your vulnerability to fluctuations in commodity prices your dependence on certain suppliers for example if you're only selling your garments to H&M H&M goes bust what do you do as a firm that's it for you right so you have to make sure you're constantly even as a firm increasing your sources of your, uh, where you sell and things like that let me draw you into a bit of a uh, regional economics here a bit <laughs> So when you look at India versus China what comes to your mind was it that India isn't as rich because it didn't focus enough on manufacturing was it and I'm asking you a bunch of questions here you can answer as you please was it because China is basically an autocracy and India is a large democracy and hence the process is a bit more complex so what comes to your mind i know there was also this big debate on trade between jagdish bagwati and amatia sen and whether we should focus on the capabilities approach or we should just focus on economic growth so when you look at india versus china and the increasing role that geopolitics is playing in the developing world you know exactly it's become a multipolar world in a way so what comes to your mind i mean why isn't india as rich as china yeah okay it's a big question um, <laughs> i mean i i'll answer as an indian rather than as an academic but <laughs> okay so i mean i'm familiar with a lot of the narratives and all of them have obviously a lot of good reasons to be true that there's the democracy dictatorship narrative right there's a very clear narrative of a manufacturing path of china which is also very focused on agriculture and closely the linkages and uh, india not really having enough of a manufacturing sector comparatively right it went very heavily on services which was also very state funded initially like a lot of the companies were and it has a huge employment crisis like not perhaps at the scale of nigeria but you know like in the future we have two regions of the world which will have the highest population yeah highest proportion of the youth population that's south asia and sub saharan africa of course with diversion between the two regions but there is also the story of land reforms in china i mean basically having more equitable land whereas the story of post colonial growth in india was basically that you left the land structures relatively intact there was some kind of land ceilings enforced but you didn't really challenge the situation of the large landowners and in effect that in a way may have been a kind of block to industrialization so it is a lot of these things but another key story i think that is important to focus on is the challenge that the government has had in terms of disciplining business and this is partially because of the fragmented nature of the federal system but it is also because nehru had a clear plan to kind of do this vivek chibber talks about this and to kind of build a national capitalist class that was primarily interested in diversifying and transforming the economies i mean very closely linked to i mean people who taught him lc from a heterodox perspective etc 
But there was a political failure to be able to do this. They just could not do this. The Indian National Congress could not enforce this kind of discipline. We remain in the situation today in India where the Modi government, which really has no emphasis on industrial policy. I mean, you can see this at every level, even with the vaccine, that their policies are always to support big business, international business. Uh, I do research on the solar energy sector. There is a very clear example of how there has been a lack of support for domestic manufacturers. And support only came in when Modi's key business person, Adani, invested in the sector. And that too, it still remains haphazard. That has resulted in a situation that all our countries will face in a way where China had invested in manufacturing. They did a big global good in terms of investing so heavily in solar panel and cell manufacturing, which contributed to the global reduction in prices for solar energy. But now every country will basically be using their products and it's put them in a situation of dependency. Nigeria, I think, has also tried to produce a solar panel manufacturing company recently. I don't know how that's going, but I saw that in the press. India has some companies, but I mean, we're basically installing Chinese and Malaysian products, which are Chinese companies in Malaysia. So now looking at the political economy of economic transformation generally. What would you say if British has to write a guidebook for politicians? And this is assuming that the incentives are right. You know, say I'm in office someday and I'm genuinely interested in developing my country, fixing things, diversifying the economy. If you had to write a guidebook, a rough guide that can be adapted locally, what are the key things that would be in that book? So this is an important question, of course. Unfortunately, I come from a perspective where I don't necessarily have the answers. <laughs> a lot of development policy is about policy merchandising. That is, you kind of have your policies and you sell them. I think the main challenge that faces countries today, late developing countries today, is that there is not enough space to experiment with policy. There is not even enough space to reach out to alternative policymakers in many countries. That is, you have these kind of policies that the World Bank and IMS tell you. You have these policies that maybe you are able to access some heterodox scholars like Hajun Chang, etc. What I would push people to think about more is Think about a wider collection of policies that are available to you and what you can actually do given the political challenges and constraints you face, right? And there has to be that aptitude for experimentation, but also the political possibilities for doing so. I think Arkabi Okube talks a lot about this in his work. So he wrote a book called Made in Africa, Industrial Policy in Ethiopia. He's written several books about industrial policy since then. And this comes from of course, a longer tradition of focusing on policy autonomy from Tandika Makandavir, etc., but also Hirschman, who essentially talked about the idea that there is no universalistic policy path, economic transformation trajectory. Every country will ultimately follow its own specific history, its own specific trajectory, which is incredibly dissatisfying for any policymaker looking for a policy. But it has to kind of be adapted to political reality. But even Germany and Russia and England, they all had different economic development pathways. And they all use different financial instruments, for example. Britain used the stock market. Germany used investment banks. Russia used development banks. This is something Alexander Gershon Kron talked about, the specificity of development. So I know that's slightly dodging the question. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Before I let you go, two quick questions. Let's talk about agriculture briefly because like you rightly pointed out it's often underemphasized that east asia also had a green revolution so to speak which preceded the big manufacturing push and i know of course nigeria also in the last six years has been emphasizing agriculture so how can we better understand industrializing through agriculture? What are the right agricultural policies, you know, to help a country transform basically from a low productivity economy into a more diversified one? Because what you see in Nigeria, for example, basically is to extend credits to farmers 
there really isn't a, a good focus on productivity and technology and mechanization and you know it, it seemed like a big employment push because agriculture already employs about 40 something percent of the working population and what we saw in east asia for example is that a lot of labor shifted from agriculture to manufacturing but you see a country like nigeria trying to push more labor into subsistence agriculture in some cases which just wasn't the situation if you had other geographic climatic or even political issues like the insecurity that the country is currently witnessing so what is the right way for developing countries and policymakers to think about agricultural policy yeah no thanks i keep using that word right way i know there's no one right way <laughs> so please indulge me <laughs> yeah i mean i'm gonna dodge it again though <laughs> so basically the thing that east asia a lot of east asian countries did not all of course that they, they had land reform right and land reform is very popular, of course, for the large proportion of people, but it's not easy to do politically for landlords, right? Large landlords. Now, the truth is, uh, I mean, that could still be discussed, and there have been a variety of experiences even within Africa over that. But most policies are very similar to what you are talking about. That's how they are being cast. So basically, I think it's really a market-led policy to give, you know, just credit to farmers, which what happens when that happens? You end up building farmer debt. Uh, you're not looking at the production side at all, right? There needs to be a much more cohesive approach to production, right? And thinking about this. I mean, many countries are doing this. It's not that they're not, but there are always equitable questions would say, if you want to export uh, meeting all the necessary standards to European markets to get into Tesco or a supermarket here. This is not an easy thing to do. A lot of uh, failure is involved for farmers, etc. But even to meet the standards, this benefits, supposedly they are sold as small farmers, right? But the small farmer category is a very wide variety of people. And this Chris Kramer and others have written about this. And it's a very heterogeneous group. And if you're saying that, say, one hectare is the minimum size of a farmer to sell to, what happens is that basically you're benefiting those farmers with that size of farms above the others. It ends up being unequal, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it is quite dislocating, right? And it will probably be quite bad for a lot of the farmers in that group. What ends up happening is that if you are trying to push that kind of policy, there are unequal outcomes associated with it. And that needs to be better thought about. But agriculture remains very underfunded in most countries. And these kind of solutions about just providing credit are really not enough. They need to be really centered within your development strategy. But how do you increase production? How do you increase the position and the security of farmers to be able to invest in long-term production? To invest in the long-term vitality and environmental security of their farms rather than thinking about, okay, how do we just meet the next debt that we have to pay, right? And that requires strategic redirection in how we think about the agrarian sector. Finally, before I let you go, which is a bit of a tradition on the show, what <laughs> is the one idea right now about anything, really, that you find exciting or you are interested in or it may even be something you're working on that you would like to see more people get excited about and or see it spread everywhere so one of the things that i found really quite shocking in my research is that when i was doing research i did my phd research about rwanda and i've been going back every year for about a month so i and i really learned a lot about development i think from talking to policymakers and all my research there but what i found really interesting is just how countries are reshaping their financial sector this sounds really boring of course mm. but in a way you have this odd occurrence in many countries across the continent that they're announcing their desire to become international financial centers. Rwanda, for example, in its national development strategy has talked about effectively becoming a tax haven in the next 20 years. In Rwanda, for example, I found that the reason they're doing that is because they see Mauritius as a key example for the continent. 
And the person who really led the growth of the tax haven in Mauritius, Ramasitanan, has been on Kagame's presidential advisory council for the last 20 years. So I decided to do research in Mauritius to think about why they decided to become a tax haven. The reason they did this is quite obvious, right? They did this for foreign exchange and they did this, okay, to kind of create some employment for bankers and lawyers. But what does that mean for its developmental challenge? Because Mauritius is a high income country now. It is one of the richest countries in Africa. But it really is not a sustainable strategy. I don't say it because it's obviously not a popular strategy. You see it now with the push for the 15% tax rate, which actually doesn't really affect Mauritius. Mauritius obviously developed at the cost of others, right? A cost of taking a lot of wealth, primarily from India, but also many African countries. Mauritius signed a double taxation agreement treaty with India in the 90s and basically became the highest source of investment. So a lot of companies stationed their investment into India when India liberalized. But India has kind of changed the terms of that agreement because of multilateral pressures. And basically, the future of Mauritius tax haven is very much in doubt and therefore puts their whole economy and economic strategy in doubt. The challenge really is that at this time, when even Mauritius is facing problems, many other tax havens have disappeared. Many other countries are actually trying to mimic that strategy. Nigeria has discussed it. Ghana has often flirted with it. Kenya is no exchange control anyway. And Rwanda has basically said that they want to mimic Mauritius. So this is a really damaging prospect, but it comes really close to this idea of selling images of how countries have developed and that being misinterpreted or being missold. And this is a very dangerous adaptation model, which actually usually blinds us to the centrality of manufacturing in all these stories. So ended up on the same point, but it's quite... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Pritish. This has been a very stimulating conversation for me. No, thanks, Toby. It's wonderful to speak with you, and thanks for inviting me. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasontrap.com.